Rise and shine, Mr. Freeman. Be careful of what you do. Big Brother is watching you. You say that you got me all in the mother. Rather than offer you the illusion of free choice, I will take the liberty of choosing for you. Hi, everyone. This is the Hurricane Labs InfoSec Podcast, Point Zero Six, the Out of Sight and Beyond Oversight episode. I'm Kelsey, your host. I'm Corey Ham, pen tester. I'm Tom Kupchak. Uh, I don't even know what I do here anymore. Um, uh, John Haprian, project manager. John's new. Welcome to the podcast, John. Hi, John. Hi, everybody. He's by far the highest level person we've ever had on the podcast other than Bill. No, no. Yeah, no, you no. are. No. <laughs> Normally we just get <laughs> like the, modest. The, we just get like the random people that walk in off the street on this thing. So Well, he might be the oldest person we've had on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> are you older than Bill or no? Um I might be a couple months older than Bill. It's close. It's close. So we've got senior management here to, you know, lay down some CISO. Uh. Yeah. Strategies. Okay. <laughs> John really understands buzzwords and spreadsheets, so he's going to be a valuable uh, yeah, I am, addition I am to the podcast. I am good with that. As Absolutely. far as I know, John, I think they just hired you to like do business stuff. Well, I think they, that was part of it. The other part of it was to maximize ROI. So that we get P- ma- P-O-I, open the kimono ROI. for win-win situations. Fisma. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Favorable outcomes for uh, absolutely. projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's important stuff, you know. We're honored. Yeah, nice to have a little more professional insight. So it, it was nice of John to take a break from his busy conference call and spreadsheet making schedule to uh, yeah, join us. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you guys in. I, I had my my uh, my person call your people and, you know, we worked it out. It was cool. Our people yeah. and your people will make some acronyms together. Right. Anyway, uh, we've got a few things to mull over here today. First, the EMV liability shift is coming up on October 1st. So we're going to be talking about that and security-related issues surrounding it. Also, Volkswagen has driven itself into a hole <laughs> and has sparked <laughs> some definite questions and concerns about software. Did you like that, Corey? Punny. And das there hole. might be one or to two topics we may address later, depending how, on how carried away we get. So, so this EMV thing, okay? Yeah. I, what? Why? What is EMV? Did they just form a conglomerate to try to like get more clout? It's just three companies, right? Why are they? Why did they? The make, acronym seems like it should be cooler than what it actually right, is. Right, because like okay, EMV. It sounds like some kind of like protocol or technology. No, it's just three companies. Yeah, it's just th- EuroPay, Mastercard, and Visa. That's it. And in fact, I find it weird that they're referencing this as like the EMV cards or the yeah. EMV. Me too, actually, because um, when my wife and I went to Europe last year and um, they use chip and pin. Right. Right, which I think is the same thing as EMV, it, right? It, well, that's the thing. They say EMV, but really it's just the microchip or the chip and pin stuff. Well, so there's, and I might be not right about this, but I think there's, so there's like three levels, right? There's the, the magnetic stripe that we use now and in, the, right. in the United States. There's just the chip, which is essentially the same mechanism as a magnet. It serves the same purpose as a magnetic stripe, except it's a little bit harder to, to duplicate and whatever. Right. Uh, and then there's the chip and pin, which has the chip and you have to put in a pin. So it's not just you, generating a code. It's right. actually You actually have to, like, like when, right. you're, when you get your money out of an ATM, you actually have to put a code in. The, so when you're in Europe, you, you put your credit card in this. They carry the device around with them. 
right. you put the credit card in there, and then it has a keypad where you put in your PIN as well. It's a textbook example of two-factor auth. Basically, something yeah. you have, yeah, essentially, and right? Something you know. So what I don't understand is if chip and PIN exists in Europe and probably other other areas. And of course, the same companies like your uh, Mastercard, right. and Visa are right. doing it there just right. fine. So I don't know if it's a cost thing or whether it's they just think that Americans can't handle Americans are number too or what. Stupid to remember numbers. Right. So right. I don't think it's that. I think it's I think it is a cost thing. If I had to guess, it's a classic example of money has power more power here probably than it does. And I would guess that a lot of big, big vendors, people like Walmart, the biggest company in the world, they probably mm-hmm. say things like, oh, we, we're highly opposed to switching to this new chip and pin system because it would add five seconds per transaction, you know, whatever it is. I'm sure they come up with some kind of a number. So they're resisting change mm-hmm. in the true American way. And that's, I think, that's my guess. I mean, obviously that's completely opinion. There's no fact to support that whatsoever. <laughs> From my perspective, from the, what I've seen, people, especially large right. vendors, will resist change. I mean, it is legitimate to say, okay, if I'm a mom and pop shop and I just got a new credit card system, you know, I don't want to have to pay starting at $200 per reader to upgrade to the new EMV system or the right. new chip and pin system. And uh, I also don't want to lose out on clients because everyone has magnetic stripe cards. And they don't have chip and pin cards, so I can't, you know, I don't know if they're backwards compatible. But if you already are having to replace the hardware in order to support the chips. Exactly. How many credit card readers don't have pins on them? Or right. pin pads? Like, none? Right, you would none. Think, uh, yeah, because yeah, they have to be able to do debit. Yeah, they have to do debit. They have touch screens for signing. So even if you need to do, like, a virtual keyboard thing, it would be possible. Yeah, that would be slower, but... Well, they might just skip the whole damn thing entirely because uh, I was just at a, um, was like a Red Robin in Pittsburgh... And they had a... You drove all the way to Pittsburgh to go I, to a Red Robin? No. Not there's there's no. one right down just, the road. There just happened to be a Red Robin <laughs> when I was in Pittsburgh. But they had a... Um, uh, it was like a... I think it was an Android tablet that you could just... Oh, yeah. Like Square know. or Right, Bally yeah, yeah, yeah. Or... Exactly. So, so it kind of circumvents the whole thing. So I wonder if, if, if maybe they're not going the full Monty with the chip and pin because they're thinking that electronic payments are going to are going to lap it at some yeah, point. Yeah, I mean, Amazon has that Amazon like okay, there was Square that was years ago. It basically for those of you that don't know, Square it is essentially a small reader, surprisingly it's shaped like a square, and it uh, plugs into the headphone jack on your iPhone or Android device and using an app you can actually swipe magnetic cards. So it's that was originally pretty much the savior of small shops, small vendors. PayPal has a similar one too. Right. So. so PayPal has one as well. And now recently Amazon has one. I forget exactly what it's called, but now that Amazon's in the game, they're essentially undercutting everyone. Like in their ad, you know, their main press release, it literally says like, we're this much less than other vendors. So like now that Amazon's in the market, they're just going to undercut everyone. So I think that you're right about that. Like desired flexibility and upgradability because the the reader costs something like I think it might be $20. It's really cheap. Yeah. And in it it might have a higher cost per transaction, but if you're talking about if you're talking about a card reader that costs uh you know $300 or $500 and you're adding in another a transaction fee on top of that, just eating a slightly higher transaction fee might not actually be that bad. Well, because magnetic stripe readers are very inexpensive. And they're the very simple. Technology has yeah. been around the technology for is very years. simple. But it's also very simple to counterfeit, too, with all the skimmers that you see. Absolutely. You can make something that's really tiny and fits right over an speaking, ATM card reader yeah, slot. Speaking or of yes. skimmers, they oh. have, there have been examples in the wild of 
chip and pin skimmers. Really? So at ETMs, they it's How's essentially it's it's a lot more work and it's a lot more complicated. But mm. the point is, it is uh, it does exist. So you're not going to completely circumvent skimmers. But looking at, I forget, we might have talked about it on the podcast. It might have been a, an article, but they're out there. But looking at the pictures they have of them, they look way more advanced than the skimmers. Uh, that you see and they they seem like we're talking about people actually kind of inserting a new ATM machine into the slot of the building basically (laughs) well inserting a new microchip reader device between the reader that's built into the ATM and the card that's basically how the Magistrate right it's just a lot that has to be a lot smaller so we're talking about a microchip that's literally maybe two millimeters thick or something very very small and very advanced technology. Oh, so like the iPhone 7 probably will be. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> you know, a couple millimeters thick. You know? Oh, no, I don't think af- after Bengate, I think they're done with uh, thin devices. I think they're going to start beefing them up again. So, well, yeah, I mean, I just think it's interesting. First of all, it's hilarious to look at our reluctance to change. And it's also, it's funny that we're upgrading, right? But we're not upgrading to the best thing. It's like, if you're going to rip out all the readers and put in new readers, why not just upgrade, do the whole thing and just go to chip and pin? Well, especially I I think, and again, I might be mistaken about this, but I think that that they're placing the financial burden on the vendors, right? If they don't They're basically saying, if you, at least this is what I remember reading, if you don't switch by a certain date, then, and then that's there's October fraud. 1st. You're liable for the exactly. fraud that results, right? right? Exactly. So yeah. So, so October first is when that liability shift happens. How will that? So okay. So what are they? What's the implication here? So if I go to Home Depot or somewhere that hasn't implemented this new chip, which by the way, I actually shop at Home Depot and they do have the chip reader. So that's a terrible example. But it, so I go it, to the gas it does, station. It does work at Home Depot. There's so a couple I, places. I Everywhere I try, close. they look at me like I'm insane when I try to <laughs> stick the card I know. In they're like, that doesn't work. That's they're what like, I always get. They're like, no, you're supposed to swipe it. Like I've never used a credit card before. Try, try using like the, the NFC payments. I, I mean, I, I've done that once or twice and, and the people are just looking at you like, like you just performed black like magic. Apple Pay. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. It's like you just you just made somebody disappear or something. You yeah, know? I've done that with like the credit cards with the chip in them, not like the <laughs> iPhone well, or anything like you know, that. Well, you know, that actually brings up a really interesting point, which is training, right? It's, it's not just the cost of, you know, replacing the readers. It's also training all of these people to, to be able to handle It is a different that, process. Right? Oh, like yeah, with the absolutely. Card, like with the chip, um, how it works is you put in your chip. It'll say, please insert card or whatever. You put in your card, and then it'll say, approved, please remove card. Then you have to sign after that. So it's kind of a different like workflow instead of normally it's you swipe, then you sign, mm-hmm. then it's approved. Now it's you insert your card, it's approved, then you have to remove it, then you have to. So it's like they changed it up, you know? It's like yeah. so yeah, you're right there is definitely training required. You could be silly and say, "Oh, well, why don't we just leave this burden on the consumers? I'm sure they can figure it out." But I can tell you I've been in line behind people who didn't even know their own debit pin or didn't even know how to use a debit pin. So I can only imagine when it comes to actually, it's not even the the, the people with the cards. It's the 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 cashiers and so on and so forth who need to be able to help people with that and who need to be able to understand when the, you know there's a problem. This is what you do and right. like like you know whenever the NFC stuff, uh, you know I've done it a couple of times and it's worked like maybe fifty percent of the time. <laughs> And when it doesn't work, I mean, the, the cashiers are just like deer in the headlights. They, they have yeah. no idea what to do. They don't even they know it's going to work. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm glad it's not my problem. <laughs> <Yeah, well. laughs> because 
That would be I, difficult. Yeah, I just, I think it is. I wonder if maybe that's why they didn't go with the chip and pin because it's such, it's, it's an even, even bigger change. It's even uh, yeah, more. I wonder if it's a, a partially a Like, like a I said, thing. we're not too good with uh, yeah. dealing no. with Let, big changes. Let's just think about it, though. Like, in a week, let's say they said, you know, all mag stripes don't work. Mm-hmm. You have to know your pin number. Mm-hmm. That would have a huge impact on the economy. Right. Assuming you had all the cards issued in time and everyone had their pins, then, you know, first time you go to swipe it, they're like, nope, wait, I need a pin now. Right. And a lot of people, uh, I can see just being at that point, they're not going to have cash or anything. They might just not purchase what they were going to purchase. Yeah. I can see retailers having a problem with that. It depends. I think it, I don't think it would have like wide sweeping changes on the economy, but I think it, it definitely would change people's perception of purchasing things. I, I think there are things that, like there's certain things that have fully inelastic demand, like for example, gas. People don't care whether pr- gas is cheap or expensive or anything. It doesn't matter. They the care. Demand. They'll I, I, buy they, they, it no matter what. They just have to buy it. They, they don't. <laughs> they complain about it, that's for sure. People do not buy more or less gas depending on how much it costs. I disagree. Yeah, I disagree too. I disagree. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I, I, I can tell you for a fact that when gas is high, we drive less. We, Definitely. My, my family, you drive, drive less, less, but yeah. there's still a minimum amount. You're not going to be like, oh, we just won't drive this month. Well, right? that's but true. for some happen. people, yeah. that probably would be necessary. Some some cases, that's the difference between driving somewhere and taking public transportation yeah. or something or as well. just not going. So, yeah. I mean, they're <laughs> all... Right. But yeah. <laughs> on, an, on a macroeconomical perspective, the demand for gasoline and oil is inelastic. It does We're, not... Res- the price is not... This is economics expert Corey Ham speaking. I, I'm right. impressed, man. Yeah. There is no... There is no correlate. There is very little correlation between the price of gasoline and the uh, demand for it, essentially. So people still want gas, whether it's cheap or expensive. That I would agree with. That so I would agree with. When it comes to the point is, okay, so I want gas. I'm going to get it one way or another, whether I have to pay cash, whether I have to use a credit card. Whether you pump it in your car and drive away. Right. So that's, you know. It's usually the way people, people will figure gas do it. People will figure out a way to use their card or they'll just use cash or whatever. I mean, I don't know if it would have economic. It definitely would because psychologically there's a big difference between using cash if you even do it. I don't think there's people who would go, go to the store, pick something out, walk up to the front, and when their credit card doesn't work, they won't buy it. I think there's people who would use another what form if they, of payment. What if they don't have another form of payment? A lot of well, people that, don't carry cash anymore. Well, then it's unlikely that they would both not carry cash and be unable to figure out slash use the <laughs> credit card reader. I would say that the people who I don't... I think you're making a lot of assumptions there. Yeah, you have a lot of faith in people. The people that don't carry cash are not the people who wouldn't be able to learn the credit card. The people who wouldn't be able to learn the credit card are the people who always carry cash and never use their credit cards. Hmm. Well, so I have a question. I, I think you're wrong, Corey. So for EMV card adoption, um, you know, it's saying that it may reduce card present, you know, physical counterfeiting. But what about online fraud? Right. It wouldn't affect that at all. So online, you're on, when you purchase from Amazon or wherever, you're still using the same thing. You're typing Just buy your, your gas online problems. Just solved. buy it online and have it shipped to your door via <laughs> Amazon Gas. But no, it basically. Well, I think still, that's yeah, Apple Pay, Android t- Pay, you know, all those solutions. I think that's when uh, PayPal. I mean, all that stuff. That's I think the online is is the application for those things. Right? right. So then the the thing is, you're talking about. So if you would calculate reducing your risk by investing in new card readers, you could also calculate reducing your risk by investing in cybersecurity measures. You can upgrade your readers or you can do everything online or do most of your business online and just, uh, you know, invest in cybersecurity measures so that 
you don't do. Honestly, I, I'm seeing more and more, especially at smaller businesses, uh, people with iPads, you know, and they've just got Square right. attached to it. I mean, no, or, yeah, or, that's um, very common. A, a guy who did uh, some remodeling on my house, right? He just pulls out his Android phone and plugs the Square thing in and you go, right? You're so, not complaining that's easier for you? No, it's, I love it, man, because it, the, you know, it's easy for me. Um, I, I get an email receipt, which I dig. They already know who I am, like what my credit card number is. So I don't even have to put in my email address. I just have to sign and they automatically know who I am and send it, which creepy, creepiness aside is super convenient, right? Convenience so, is huge, but the, you know, there are definitely impacts that like I guarantee you the contractor does might have he probably doesn't have an additional fee, but if all of his business was done that way, he might have to start increasing his well, rates. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, a, we actually talked about that. It's percentage. I mean, it's, well, it's, he said, you know, he's like, you know, you can pay me cash or, you know, do credit. But if it's credit, you know, it's going to cost me a little bit extra. And absolutely. Like, and then, you know, I was I was cool with that. I, yeah, I was willing, like to, I was willing to pay that. It's like $5 or whatever. Maybe, yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. a small so, maybe 2 to 3% max. So of I don't know, man. I think in a perfect world for me, everybody would have a smartphone and a square. <laughs> Just, then, or, or some sort of specialized, you know. In um, that world, then cybersecurity is king. Because then there's no chip and pin. There's no right. <laughs> it's I, all... See, I don't understand why they don't just go straight to that and just skip all this chip and pin crap. Well, see, it would actually. I don't. I'm not super familiar with the technical side of the chip and pin stuff, but I assume that if you had a card reader that supported chip and pin, you could just do a whole lot of fun cryptographic stuff with generating a unique code, and you could even do like some kind of. I mean, heck. You could use a fingerprint scanner, like iPhones and iPads have fingerprint right, readers. Right. Just have you know, use it, have it pull the fingerprint from iTouch and compare it to a database of what's already, you know, what that person's fingerprint is. There, that's two factor or even three factor what you are. I mean, that's. I think that those types of things are possible. So in that world where everyone just has smart devices, it's true. An iPad can do way more than a VeriSign card reader can. It just it has a camera. You could take a picture of the person while they're swiping their card. I mean, all those things could be used to circumvent fraud. I always thought it would be a cool idea. Is they have security cameras everywhere. Just correlate take, that data. Take a picture, like you know, get your security camera feed. Register when someone swipes a card or puts it, you know, the credit card into the machine. And you log that. Put it all into some big Splunk instance somewhere. And then, and whenever there's fraud, there just be like, oh, it's that guy. Right. But the problem is it's that guy doesn't actually help you that much in the world of fraud. But Well, yeah, it doesn't tell you. The <laughs> person, male, most... brown hair. <laughs> the, pers- <laughs> the person who is the one that's using the stolen credit card is not generally the person who's stealing the credit card that's anymore true. in the world of fraud. Also, they're typically using it online, not in person, which is it, another. It, it varies because card present transactions are fundamentally different than right. card not present And that's what the EMV changes is card present transactions. The case of like the target breach, for example, though, wouldn't uh, have done there anything. wasn't any value necessarily for online transactions because you didn't have the verification code. Okay. You had the track one and track two data right. on the cards. So, so you had, so to, you had to physically use cards at a place. So that the case of the target situation, that is mitigated by the chip and pin not chip mm-hmm. and pin, but the EMV. Same thing. It's because the same it's thing. A, well, not the so pin, maybe it's, but they're looking at it as a as a eighty percent solution. It's not perfect, but it's going to improve the situation. Nothing. You're improving. Right? Yeah, so, yeah. This, I guarantee you there's some data scientist out there that has looked at the data and said, if we reduce the amount of fraud present in card present transactions, we can overall reduce the costs of you know that kind of thing. I'm sure yeah, that analysis. I, I has would been argue performed. that that's significant. Because oh yeah. No, it is. This sort of thing where you're going to a store with a, sto- a clone stolen credit card, 
you're buying something, at that point, you're gone. There's not any shipping anything to an, an address, no recourse right. for the mm-hmm. The other thing anyone. is that verification is way less. So, like, online, when you buy something, you have to give this, they have to give the CVV or CVC or whatever code. You have to give a, sh- a billing address, which and is, the, which is additional. Has match and it has to match... And a lot of card. vendors will do things like if you're shipping to a billing address you've never shipped for before, then you have to type in the whole thing again. And it's also like online, I guess what I'm saying is online transactions already, it's almost like they already assume that they're fraudulent. I always, I always found that interesting with um, a lot of people, uh, at least people that I've spoken to, where they're super duper paranoid about using their credit cards online. Like, I'm not, I don't want to put my credit card number in online because it might get hacked right, or something like that. Right, but they'll swipe it at Target but, but, all day but, long. Exactly. Or, or they'll go to a restaurant and they'll sit down and they'll pull out their credit card and give it to the, the waiter or the waitress. And the wait- they disappear with it. You don't know what they're doing with it. They don't right. think twice exactly about that. Exactly right. And I, I always, whenever somebody tells me that, I'm like, look, you know, have you ever bought any? Have you ever bought a meal at a restaurant with a credit card? Yes. Okay. Well, then you just took a You've much greater seen, risk than right. you did buying things online. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And remember the? Uh, well, I, I mean, I can't believe I even remember this, but the old style used to be they'd take like a carbon copy. Yeah. Now, yeah I mean, yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. They're yeah. taking carbon copies of credit cards, <laughs> and then what? Someone's typing like hire Juan and he types them into the like types the I actually have no idea how that How worked. did they do I, it? I don't know. Did they mail I, them? It doesn't matter. I remember that, it. The point I mean, that was it. that was the way to basically guarantee that the card was legitimate in the eyes the of the credit card copy? processor. Yeah. yeah. Right. Because if you had the card present there and you carbon it's copied like it there some way they credit could go card back facts. on it. Right. So the thing is okay so in that circumstance there's a box of credit cards. And it's literally, someone has already <laughs> gone to the effort of mostly reproducing this credit card for you. Right, right, you know what I mean? Right. Like, there's a box of papers that has hundreds of thousands of credit cards. That was that was very physically secured. Very. very. That's crazy. Now, the thing that I always find the interesting. cardboard box have, was unmarked. Right, it was unmarked. That was a <laughs> yeah, banker's yeah, security, box. But it just, security through obscurity. I, right? I have a card here you can't take an imprint on. Oh, right. So it's got the stuff on the back. There's a card I have that has that. no... It's, and yes. every, everyone looks at the front of it when they're trying to, like, check the name, and they get very, very confused. So for those of <laughs> so. you listening, <laughs> they do. all of you listening that aren't here, Tom has a credit card that has no imprinted numbers. The numbers are not indented. It's just Tom flat no on the name. front. Yeah, and it's just on the back that it's uh, printed and not. So. There is no Tom Cop check. I'm going back to beaver pelts. Beaver pelts? Barter? <laughs> bartering. I'm going back That's to bartering. Fantastic. What are you going to do? That is you, no, no, bartering John, for you. John, when you were a kid, they did bartering, right? Oh, <laughs> nice, Ow. nice, nice. Bartering uh, in Bitcoin. That's that's what I'm doing. Bartering in Bitcoin. Bartering right. in Bitcoin. So you barter for more GPUs, and then mm-hmm. you use those GPUs yep. to mine more Bitcoin. Yep. No. It's the future. We all know GPU how many, mining is... How many beavers do you need to get a Bitcoin? Um, well, it depends on, you know, the exchange rate varies quite a bit. It also and depends on the size of the it's beaver. A very, it's a very volatile market, you know? I mean, beavers just don't grow on trees. You got to go out. You gotta they literally grow off them, of trees, though. Oh, and, we should move on. Uh, you got to trap them. And, you know, so it's well, crazy. Well, frankly, I don't give a damn. <laughs> so anyway, consumers aren't really, I mean, since consumers at this point don't have to have a pen or anything, uh, the implication and impact is mostly on retailers then. Yeah. Correct. So, okay. I, so yeah. we never okay. get to go through the scenario of fraud, like the fraud burden switch. So I go to S- S- Walgreens, I swipe my card fraudulently <laughs> because they don't have an EMB. Is it is it every transaction after that where someone fraudulently uses my card they're responsible no, for? Or is no. it just a single transaction? It would be that initial transaction would be my guess. It's the initial transaction, but it's all on the retailer that accepts the card. So they and, have to or, refund you. Or the card issuer. So let's look at this from a couple of different scenarios. Mm. Let's say you have a, a Visa card and it doesn't have EMV. 
even though that doesn't make sense because so I have a, a okay. Hitter. Say I do have a card that uses. You EM. have a card that doesn't have EMV. Let's just say, and Walgreens you doesn't know, take do, EMV. Doesn't take EMV. They have a mag stripe. That burden would fall on Visa because they, they have not provided you a card. Right. Mm-hmm. Let's say they upgraded your card. And then they still And it has stripe. EMV. You go to a retailer that has MagStripe. You swipe the card like you normally do. They're responsible if there's any fraud on the transaction because Visa has given you the so, card. So, okay. So, let's think about this. So, I go to Target. This is, say this is two years ago before Target got breached. The, Target isn't compliant with this new EMV standard. I, they have MagStripe. I have an EMV card. I swipe my card. And my credit card gets stolen by some Russian dude, and he buys 100 <laughs> TVs. And it, it charges my card up to, like, all the money I can't afford. Yep. Is it Target that pays for that, or is it the card issuer? In, or is it in, just... Who's the card issuer? As of October 1st, it's Target. So Target has to pay... It's the re- merchant. So the merchant, yeah. the merchant, whoever leaked my card, has to pay for all of the fraudulent transactions... With that card. Well, that, no, 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 no. That doesn't make any no, sense. It, that no, doesn't no, make no, any no, sense. No, 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 no. No, it's whoever you bought, whoever the TVs were purchased. Oh, okay. The, so the, if the TV per, if the TV seller guy that was willing to accept a fraudulent card, they're If your card gets stolen, it's just like your card got stolen, right? Oh. I, I think so what we're talking about change. is the... Right. I, I, would, I can't imagine it would, right? Okay. It's, it's, so it's no, whatever... You're, you're wondering about subsequent fraud. Then. Yeah, that, that's what that's I'm saying. That's a good question. So the, that's what I'm saying. Because like, it's so if Target doesn't have the EMV reader and it's their fault that it got leaked to Vladimir, Vladimir and Paler... Well, or how do you prove <laughs> that? Right? Well, I guess, you, I guess technically you kind of could, right? The, the tech behind it is that the EMV cards are embedded with the, you know, the microprocessor chips and they generate the one-time authentication codes for each transaction. So if they're buying you know, a whole bunch of TVs from one place that place is going to be, you know, liable for... So what if they got the credit card from Target because they didn't have... That doesn't affect it, is what you're saying. No, I don't think so. It's, 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 does, it, those two things no, are not affected. No, I, don't, I don't think so. I think okay. it's just... So it's if who, you accept who, a fraudulent who pays, card. Who pays for uh, a fraudulent purchase? Okay. Like a legitimate fraudulent so purchase. So in, in right now, if... Now, I, again, I, I'm just... I'm completely making this up. I, I, I'm just assuming this is how well, it works. Well, because so. it, it seems It's logical, but, I mean, who knows, right? So... There's a huge weight lifted off a lot of these banks' shoulder. Or oh, I'm sorry, yeah, credit card issuers. Yeah, it's in their best interest to issue these Obviously. cards. Obviously. Well, guess who's and they also the came case, up with this rule too. So. so here's no, no, that's not true. They didn't. That's the thing. So okay, say I have a, I don't know. So I have a, I have a card, a Visa that goes through Chase Bank, and my credit card gets stolen. Is it Chase that's footing the bill or is it Visa? I have Does no anyone idea. Know? I don't know how that works now, quite honestly. What all I know that? is, all I know Cause is because Visa is the one that came up with it. So I assume they're the ones that had to pay the bill, right? Because they're no going to want to shift that away from them. I mean, as a consumer, all I know is if somebody uses my card fraudulently, I don't have to pay for it. Right. So that makes me happy. And that doesn't change. <laughs> that doesn't change. No, and, a, and a lot of consumers are in the dark about this anyway, so they don't know what's going on. Oh no. <laughs> we should probably talk about something else. That's interesting, yeah, we, though. It we is. Can move no, on. I'll tell you what. If I were a small retailer, I would be looking at uh, Apple Pay and Android. Oh, I'd yeah. be looking at stuff Square. Oh, totally. I'd be like, screw this. The I'm, Amazon. I'm, yeah, thing? right. Just I'm, I'm not even. Yeah, no. I'm not going to worry about this. Yeah. I mean, the advantage, although the unspoken benefit of the chip and pin stuff is that the cybersecurity side of it is kind of removed. Like yeah. you're not. Yeah. So if you're stupid enough to be a retailer and use unauthed Wi-Fi and your card is somehow as an encrypted end-to-end. Because it's that's your fault then, right? right? I mean, so right. whereas if you get the Verifone, 
end-to-end encryption master 3000 that costs uh you know a grand but works then you know it might be well at a minimum you can shift the blame to somebody else if it doesn't work so just so that we're providing accurate information on here if you have a counterfeit magnetic stripe card with track data copied from a chip card so that means you you copied the card off of a right so you got you scraped it from targets memory and you put it onto a card and use it at a POS system that the terminal is not enabled for contact chip, the merchant is responsible for that liability. Okay, so it's their fault for accepting a fraudulent card. Yes, yes. But it's not their fault for leaking my data. Yes. Okay. Likewise, if you have a counterfeit magnetic stripe card with track data copied from a chip card, but it's used on a contact chip-enabled POS system, it's the issuer's liability. Okay. So they're saying if you upgrade, then it's not your problem. If you don't upgrade, then it is your problem. Yes. So that's incentive. They're trying to incentivize the people to upgrade. So this is not necessarily the target that has having the information stolen from them that's right. It's dealing the target with this for that's accepting the stolen information. It's it's target a couple months later. Right. And I assume that the the fraudulent card that's that fraudulent mag stripe card that's trying to be used on a chip and pin or chip terminal probably wouldn't work, right? Or at least it maybe not. I assume there's some level of security if you're going from a mag stripe to a chip, since it's missing the chip component, that it would at least maybe flag the transaction or something. I think that like there has to be a point for the chip. They're actually using it, right? Well, I think that's going to be the initial training and adoption phase that we're going to be seeing. Because right now you have the option of using both. All of your chip credit cards have mag stripes, and right. now no one's replacing the mag stripe readers with just chip readers because right. they still need to okay. accept the legacy stuff. So you're saying I would, yeah. So I would take a mag stripe, use it in a fraudulent transaction, which I say, oh, my chip doesn't work. You have to use the mag stripe, and then it's the, the card issue. Hey, you could you could probably even put. You know, clear tape over it on the card. Oh, just say, it's not working, yeah. And, and it's easy enough to clothe the mask stripe. You put that in there, oh, it's not working, you swipe it like there. This concludes Tom's Fraud Tip Corner. <laughs> Episode I, one. If, if, if tape is, you know, too visible or whatever, clear well, nail sure. polish will probably accomplish the same thing, I'm sure. Yeah. Speaking right. of nail polish, let's talk about Volkswagen. <laughs> That was a great segue. <laughs> so beautiful. Segway city here at <laughs> So anyway, it seems like Volkswagen has been hiding some things. Um, Woo, Linux. Oh, goodness. Overall, uh, what's been going on is they've installed the software on some or I don't know if it's some or all the diesel cars that it somehow figures out when they're undergoing emissions testing so it can adjust the cars to put out more it's, nitrogen it, oxide at acceptable levels. No, so, it's less. It's, it says, like, it's basically saying, like, oh, they're testing me. Be quiet real yeah, quick. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, that's that's kind of awesome if we could write software that good. Well. <laughs> I think that's no. the, the most surprising aspect of the story is that a big company could write software that That, that is nuanced, amazing. Right? It's a development success and <laughs> a failure exactly. at the same time. Wow, that's a triumph. Well, I mean, wait, 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 wait. We're, we're overlooking something. What? First of all, they're duping the government. Yep. So that's no, that's true. That's, that's like true. easy mode. It's like taking candy from a baby. Right, right, right. right <laughs> like right, you right. think the people that were paid to test from the testers union were even paying attention? Actually, they... I read about this. No, um, they, it's self-testing, right? N- well, it is normally self-testing. It, well, so it's not all self-test. So I, I find this whole thing 
Sure. Absolutely fascinating. No, you, you drive a Volkswagen. Well, I do drive a Volkswagen. Full disclosure. I'll tell you what, man. I was talking to my wife, and I'm like, man, I am so glad I didn't get a diesel because I was. You were thinking. I, I, I really was. Yeah. I, yeah. I have to say, the Kelsey and I, we drove a Volkswagen when we went to Detroit, and out of all the times in my life that one day I was driving a Volkswagen was the most number of times I've gotten caught in off in a car. <laughs> that <laughs> we, was crazy. Well, you were in Detroit. We, I mean, we had, we had the we had the truck that cut us off on the turnpike. Detroit, though. No, this was the Ohio turnpike. Oh. Yeah. Um, in but Michigan, you, we had... What, what it, were the plates? Were the plates Michigan plates? They probably I, thought you I, were from Michigan. I was getting out of the way. Oh, I wasn't okay. looking at the license plate. No, I mean <laughs> your plates. I mean your plates. No, it was Ohio plates. Oh, okay. Um, we had someone who passed us on the berm in a construction zone. That's just normal Michigan driving. Yeah, that was in Michigan, so... That's there there was at least a couple other ones, too. In Michigan, it was ridiculous. There's, a, there's a few extra roles in driving in Michigan. First of all, Fend for yourself. Ten miles over the speed limit is the actual speed limit. Mm-hmm. The reason why I got blinkers, a car to go to blinkers are not necessary at all. They're just completely optional if you want to check them out sometime. <laughs> and there's no cops, so that's well, the they're too busy dealing with actual crime. No, no, they're not. No, they're just not there. They're just not there. <laughs> No one knows where they are. Okay, good to know. Back back to you, John. Yeah, yeah. John okay. drives a non-diesel. <laughs> so Volkswagen. I drive, and thankfully, a non-diesel uh, Volkswagen. So what I read is, so if you're building a, a diesel engine, right, it, it's a compromise between um, power and gas mileage, right? You can have one, you can have the other, but you can't have both. And there's very strict mm-hmm. regulations on And there's very strict emissions. regulations on, on certain types of, of uh, gases that, that the engine emits. So Volkswagen, I think it was in 2009, came out with their clean diesel engine, right? And that was like a big freaking deal. Like they, they, they won green awards, all sorts of stuff, because they finally, they finally figured out how to create a, a diesel engine that had decent performance and good mileage, gas mileage, and low emissions, right? Yeah, Volkswagen and the... The company Volkswagen owns almost every German car company other than Mercedes, right. including Audi. And they're like a champion of the diesel fuel world. Like they were on the totally other side of things. They were the first Le Mans team to win with a diesel car. Like they're like huge into the diesel world. Like mm-hmm. they are champions of diesel. So it's, yeah, I mean, they're experts. So, um, so there's, there's a couple of ways, I guess, that you can reduce those emissions, right? You can tweak the engine so it has less power. I think it, because it burns at a lower temperature or it gets less, worse gas mileage. There, you can also, there's a, uh, a system that you can install, which will actually re- kind of recover and, and turn some of those excess gases into, I think it was carbon dioxide and water, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's diesel exhaust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, what they yeah, do on yeah. semis. So, so the, the big deal was, you know, Volkswagen came out with this engine that kind of did the impossible and didn't require any additional special treatment systems, right? So mm-hmm. it's the green diesel. And uh, that was like a big deal. And, and so, well, it turns out they really didn't. What what they did is they cheated. They they programmed the the uh, code in the, the, in the, ECU. the the ECU. Thank you, ECU, to recognize when it was being tested and to kind of ramp down the emissions, right? Just for that testing period. And then as soon as you left the place, they ramped them back up. So you wouldn't be able to tell um, that normally you'd the have thing, to be testing the performance. Normally of the, the thing car is, is and, spewing out yeah. tons and tons of, of, uh, of gases. So I guess the, the University of, I think it might have been in Virginia, or University of West Virginia, they started testing um, 
these cars. And what they had to do is they had to figure out, they had to build a special rig so that they could test the cars while they were driving. And that's how they figured it out. So right? just through sheer practicality of figuring <laughs> we should test these cars in a real world environment. they Actually, to- I read that the, 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 the University of Virginia or West Virginia team was hired by Green Company magazine or something like that to do some measurements. So it was actually supposed to be like a pro diesel Okay. Thing. So they and didn't mean to discover. No, this they didn't huge... mean to do this. No, absolutely not. So I find it just absolutely fascinating that, and and I think this this gets to a, a larger question, which is you know I think kind of what we wanted to discuss, which is software as an infrastructure, right? The idea that that um, just like a building uh, has you know is made out of different types of material, and there are uh, certain standards that it must meet, and you have inspectors who take a look and make sure that it's built to a certain standard. Software is getting to the point now where you could arguably consider it an inf- a, a type of infrastructure, right? It is because it's controlling many exactly, infrastructure. Exactly, exactly. And it's known as proprietary software. That's kind of, that's its Well, term, so the correct, idea or? is, I think that the, the issue is, or that the concern is, is should something that is essentially a piece of infrastructure, some, something that could uh, have uh, some severe uh, ramifications if it's not operating properly or whatever, should that be protected under DRM? Should that be something that nobody except the manufacturer knows what's inside of it? Well, I think, so, okay, Kelsey asked the question, is that the same thing as proprietary software? So proprietary software you could define as essentially software that's written by a company for itself usually, or it's basically close. So it's closed source software that is designed for one specific purpose. That is the general definition of proprietary. The definition of, you know, DRM or like kept under lock and key, those are more like secret software. There's no real definition for that. But John, your point about should this information be kept under DRM or not? I mean, so think about this. One World Trade Center, Mm -hmm. right? It's the building. Do you think I could go online and get the blueprints, the material data sheets, the like, I assume that that information is kept after Snowden, probably. Uh, Probably not. I assume that, well, I assume that information is kept under lock and key. I accept, I assume that they have a very high level of secrecy with the blueprints and the material design state, like all of, or like, for example, the building inspection where the, the engineers, you know, the port authority or whoever came in and said, okay, you know, what, what type of counterweight system are you using? How big are your, uh, you know, supports, how, how right. big are your, all that stuff. I assume that information is kept secret. However, was it still inspected? Was it still right. verified? Right. Right. So it's like a pen test report. Yeah. Right? I, yeah. Can I go online and look at any company's pen test reports? Usually not. I mean, very rarely will you ever see a pen test report in the public eye. But at the same time, are they getting evaluated by an independent They're agency? happening. Right. And, and They're there, happening. there is some sort of standard that, or a standard of accountability. Right. So it's right. the same thing. Like, And I think it's completely reasonable for infrastructure level software projects like, for example, the ECU system that's going to be implemented on millions of cars. Should that be vetted? or at least verified by an independent agency? Should there be a code almost, like a some kind of a standard that you have to meet? Maybe, maybe not. It's going to be really difficult to do that kind of thing with software because unlike building materials, it's so much more, the, wide, the amount of diversity is so much higher. Like there's only, I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of steel, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but there's a lot more different types of programming strategies and it'd be hard to come up with a programming strategy that was considered steel standard or up to code. So I I think that that's a good point to bring up that like, maybe we should be having some sort of independent verification for code, not just letting people. And I mean, if if you really think about it, 
all the cars that are running code in America today, how many of them are open source? Any? I, I doubt any None. of them would be. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So yeah, there's yeah, yeah. how many cars on the road? Millions. And all of them are running proprietary software, 100% of them. Now, maybe there are some companies out there, cough, cough, Tesla, that would release the open source. You know, if they're going to release their patents, they'd probably release their OS as well. So my argument is, if it's not going to be open source, it needs to be vetted independently. It's completely unacceptable for it to be developed under closed doors, produced under, you know, published under closed doors. No one ever sees it. No one ever knows exactly how it functions. And it's pretty much impossible and probably illegal to actually get the code and read it. You just but, need to trust that, that the company that built it used adequate procedures and right. processes and have tested everything, which I, I think it's pretty clear that that that. Uh, not the case. That that trust is, is not it, necessarily it, something no, that needs I, I verification. Think it's yeah. pretty clear that Volkswagen did a damn good job testing that. They did. No, they <laughs> see that's a different. That's a whole different story. It's not. The question is not does it work. It's not like it's negligence on their part. They they have no argument well, for negligence. Okay, so, no, so, that's so, intentional. Um, I mean. But 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 um, another example is uh, Toyota. And a couple of years ago, Toyota had this thing where uh, I think you press, press the brake and. But see, that was all. But, that was airware. Like that but, never. But that was. But that was an example. I think that's an example though of software. I don't think that was. That was floor mats. That wasn't on purpose. It was floor no, mats. no, 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 no. Wasn't no, it? I think. I think there. I thought there was a. All right. Well, before we get sued, I should probably make sure we're using the right information. But I was under the impression that that was because it was a, a software it was glitch due to software, and and it was because the software standards, like the software itself was really bad, essentially. Okay. It wasn't built very so well. So that was negligence, right? Maybe, maybe right. a better example but, but, would be like the Chrysler stuff where you can hack, you can hack into yeah. cars remotely. Yeah, no, I think that's that actually is another great example. So, so, so I mean, I think the point, and I, I don't, I think open sourcing that kind of stuff is probably not realistic because well, it just is, like they're not going to open source the blueprints right, for the world trade. Right, right, it is, it is intellectual property. They do put, spend time and money in it, and, and it, and it can be a competitive advantage if you do it well. But I also think that that I agree with you, Corey. That that you know, just having it completely not—you don't have to make your pen test reports public, but you right. do have to get. But you do tests. have to do it, right? You know, I mean, yeah. And and you know, again, you know, with with self-driving cars and you know all these things that are coming down the pike, it, it's it's only going to become increasingly important. Oh you know? yeah, and I mean, we're letting software. I mean, people. You know, this is classic blog article, but you know code is the language of the future. Well, it's actually kind of true. If you can speak and read code, then there's a lot of things that you have under your control, or at least there's a lot of things that you could control. Right. Because as time goes on, the amount of things that are controlled by software algorithms code is increasing. And it's not going to stop increasing because it's only the next logical step in automation. And computers are really smart and they don't make mistakes like we do. I mean, there's a thousand reasons. But I think that it's pretty scary to... Th I think a lot of open source people would say, okay, well, take, for example, Ubuntu Linux or Debian. Is it easier to attack because the source code is public? I would say no. no I would say I it's I not. I think so, yeah. So I think, and I mean, not to say that obviously Debian and Ubuntu are both free. There's no one charges for them except for, you know, the few people like Red Hat that do use some open source components. But I think that almost you could apply some of the open source architecture that we see in software and operating system design and apply it to the car's software or other embedded systems. So, like, I know for a fact my car, I, have, I drive a Ford Focus, and I guarantee you it has 
code from Microsoft Windows in it. I guarantee you it's probably because well, Ford has the sync system. So right, it's written by Microsoft. I guarantee you that there is lines of code that are running on my computer in my car that is built into my car that I can't see or change that are from operating system from the Windows operating system. And so the the same thing can be done with, for example, Linux. I know that the Tesla operating system, while not open source, is based on Android, I believe. I think it, or if it isn't based on Android, I think it's based on some relatively open type of software. So I, I think that applying that same, you know, kind of like the open SSL thing, where it's everyone depends on it, but no one really, you know, everyone, it's public, it's open source, but everyone still depends on it. I know that know? Co- or cars rely on software and everything like that, but I can just picture like you driving a car, hitting the brake, and then like the DNS lookup for the brakes failing, <laughs> and then just like, not getting through. Well, I mean, cars have been controlled by computers for the last 20-something years. Uh, I know there's been various degrees of control, but even drive-by-wire is pretty recent within the past 10, 15 years where that's become standard for just the accelerator. And Compu- you know electronic braking is even But planes are controlled recent. by computers, too. Well, sure, Boeing is the same way. You look at the 777 and 787. Those Three, are all... The Airbus 380. Oh, all those planes are drive-by-wire, and they call them glass cockpits because there, there are no... All the instrumentation is is designed. So, and, and that's the an interesting passengers question. are on the same network as the controls well, too. Are no, airline uh, airline companies? Is there? Does anybody inspect their code? That's a good question. Um, someone did get banned from flying on United for. No, that's getting, not the same thing. That's but not, that's not but the they question also, he's asking. They they were evaluating the security of the airplanes and no, that, he's talking about what I'm saying is you know system. what we're proposing for for cars you know, these embedded systems that there be some sort of oversight or independent um, verification entity is is there something like that for airplanes I right now? Because to your point, uh, they're almost entirely. They, oh, uh, I think that there, if there isn't a, I think the way they've gotten around it with aviation is just test the crap out of it. Whoa. So I think that I think that the way that they've, and I mean, like Tom, the FAA has standards for this stuff. Sure. Well, they don't necessarily have standards for software design. They have standards for planes for what they can do and what they can't do. I thought there were some kind of. Eh, maybe I'm. We'll have to look this up. We none of us are experts. However, I have seen it's interesting. I have seen cases though, like Boeing had a bug in their software where if the plane was up too long, it would basically the software would crash. So the solution was basically to reboot the plane every so many <laughs> right, right, like, cron job. Basically, <laughs> they patched yeah, it. yeah, because they didn't want it to have to reboot it in the air. The point is, there at least to my knowledge, there have been no plane crashes that have been directly caused by a software bug. Or even indirectly. And my point is, Tom, there are extremely crucial systems that depend in, almost entirely on software that are that work. And I think that the way that the aviation industry has gotten around it is just by extensive thorough testing and fail safes. I, I mean, think they got redundancy, uh, multiple redundancy. Right. Yeah. Corey, you're wrong. Uh, Airbus had a plane that crashed due to a software error what? within the past couple of months. What was it? Quality issue. Uh, in an Airbus A400 military transport jet caused by a faulty software configuration. So, okay. yes. So, so there's a software problem in well, the engine control software for this Airbus. I, I think the uh, question the die. question is whether or not... So it, whether <laughs> or not plane bugs, crashed because bugs, of software. Bugs happen, right? It, it, it doesn't matter how Absolutely. many people are inspecting it. it. It happens. The question is, is it something that should be proprietary to, the, to an organization or something that should be there should be some oversight? And I, I think, think there, there should be some should oversight. I think there should be at least some oversight. It doesn't have to be public. 
doesn't have to be open. Right. It right. can still be proprietary. Right. But I think that there should be there's people who pen test the NSA, assuming like there are there are people who pen test top secret content and there are people who and that stuff is never made public, but mm-hmm. it's still tested and it's still that report is sitting somewhere. It mm-hmm. does exist. At least the people are aware of the risks. And the other thing is, at least with aviation, something they're really good at is every single time a plane goes down, they make sure to figure out exactly what caused it and make yeah. sure it doesn't happen again. And I think that's a big difference with, with cars. cars. I mean, if that's something if something happen. goes wrong, they only don't do anything unless, I mean, it, there are unless it happens recalls. like 20,000 times, right? right? <laughs> there are manufacturer recalls. However, right. Right. the amount of persistence and extreme determination that is applied to aviation, that's what makes aviation safe. And a, a good example of the cars thing, the GM ignition switch, how many... Issues it 13, took. I think 13 people died before they had to actually so issue a recall. So when self-driving cars become a thing, which I believe they will, then does adopting the, the airline model, does oh, that make sense? That's what Google has been doing. Is that, make, I mean, they is have, that what they're going to have to do, basically? That's what the, – the amount of data logging that is on one of those Google self-driving cars has to be astounding. And I think that they are going to use that data – absolutely to their advantage, not only because it's Google, but because it enables that type of thing to be possible. So while my car... I can't wait. (laughs) I'm so looking forward to never having to drive again. It will be amazing. I mean, the the Google self-driving cars have logged over 1 million miles on the road, and all of the accidents have been caused by stupid human beings. Hmm. There have been two, I think, in a million miles, and all of them, both of them were caused by, like, it got rear-ended one time, and it got, I think it got sideswiped or... But I, I, I think I think one was when someone was driving the self-driving car, so it was they, oh, no they, different. They're than required a car. by law until re- very recently to always have a backup driver. Well, yeah, but like this was when the car was not in self-driving right. mode. Also, I remember recently they had a they announced that the uh, lidar, which is the type of the laser system that it uses to map out the surroundings, the Google self-driving car. It's the spinning laser thing on top of the car. They figured someone <laughs> That's a technical term. Someone figured out a certain sequence of like you can crash it with laser. Like you can use pulse a laser to crash it and yeah, it's a big deal cuz it can be crashed, but at the same time it's like what do you expect? You can also just like you know well, you can throw a put brick, sugar brick in someone's through, gas through somebody's tank, front right? window too <laughs> yeah. and you can You can crash throw it you can stop a regular car and just throw <laughs> yeah, right. So it's like that's why the car has so many other sensors and blah blah. So just kind of for general high-level knowledge for people who may be less technical, like myself. You know, with open-source software that is freely used, changed, and shared, I mean, the public open-source term on its own can be scary for people who don't know what people who are going in and, you know, writing their own code or changing it. It's like Wikipedia is what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, that can, that would make, of course, people not having their hands in the code, very nervous. Like, right. are people just going to get in there and mess it up? Or are they, just like you know, going to Wikipedia, did someone edit it? So is there anything you can impart well, for, that would kind of provide comfort for those people? So or? generally how open source projects are run is anyone can view the code, but very few people can edit or modify it. Oh, okay. So essentially, like, for example, take the Linux kernel, the number one piece of open source software that the world has ever seen. Anyone can go and download the Linux kernel software. Go to kernel.org download it and view, I don't know, something like two or three million lines or even more of C that you will never understand. But the number of people who can actually modify it, there is an extensive review process. You you submit a request and people, multiple people are assigned to review your code, make sure it's safe. And then if it is safe, it gets implemented and then it gets 
but it's not implemented into the actual code. It's implemented into a test release, which is then tested. And then, I mean, it, there's a the answer is there is a process, and the process works. The Linux kernel is incredibly secure, incredibly stable, and yeah, it's had its share of flaws, but it's been patched just just like aviation, where every time there's a critical flaw, and there are, for every critical flaw, there have been hundreds of thousands that have been patched just by normal discovery and testing. And fundamentally, it's software. It's written by people. You look at something even like Heartbleed. That was basically the work of one developer right. who made a mistake on something. And two guys mm-hmm. who okayed the change without really reading through the code. And that's an incredibly small project where the Linux, Linux kernel has thousands of people looking at it. And that OpenSSL project had something like 13 or less. Like it was like a, a handful of official developers that were actually working full time on that project. So that's it's just good, like that's good to know that people can't, not everyone can just, you no, know, stick their fingers in there. I mean, no. Corey's not going to go home and rewrite <laughs> your uh, car software tonight. No. And that's, <laughs> Might e- as well. If, if <laughs> My car. Just like Wikipedia, if you do, there, certain articles can't be changed. Like, you can't just go and say, water is not water. It's just, it's, the article's locked. It hasn't changed. Well, there's, there's a, a there's bunch a of built-in mechanisms. Right. The, the auto reverse fail safe and, and, yeah, yeah yeah exactly so even oh. if somebody does do something there's there's a lot of different it's like filters almost right. for, for that so sort of even thing. take a system like wikipedia where literally anyone can edit it at mm-hmm. any time mm-hmm. it's still pretty accurate because people have a lot of processes that are implemented to keep fake revisions from sticking so and it is like wikipedia scientifically has is decently accurate when it when it compares to other encyclopedias. So yeah, water is actually a locked page on Wikipedia. Yeah, interestingly, you enough. cannot edit water; it's locked. <laughs> Sorry. Everything we know about water has been discovered. Right. So if and something change exactly, like it's like you know, and it's only logical to do that. You can't just go and edit it. You know, that kind of thing could be done with cars too. So it is. Interesting. I, it, I mean, don't get me wrong; it is easy to be uneasy about open source, like. Do I want someone to be able to read the code on my car? And the truth is, yeah, I do, because I want someone smarter than me to read it and then tell me when there's problems. <laughs> so. Interesting. Well, thank you for that. And real quick, I want to touch on this article. John found this article. It's called The Man Who Got No Whammies. And basically, it's about the game show. It's an older game show, correct? Um, it's called Press Your Luck. <laughs> it makes me feel old. This is, I, young, I used to watch this. Fifties or seventies? I, I don't remember know. when I, it was I, have, I, I have seen like newer versions of it too. Oh, so, man, you guys are killing me. <laughs> so anyway, this game, Press Your Luck, uh, it's about a guy who cracked the code. And from my understanding of the article, it seems like with the combination of doing research and a little bit of creativity and thinking outside the box, people can come up with some pretty simple solutions for things so yeah i think it's just it's just a a, a sent brief synopsis uh, pressure luck was a, a game show i think it was in the 80s mid 80s early 80s something like that where they had a, a board and you would press a button and wherever you press a button it would land on one of the squares in the board and you get a you know a prize or you get uh, you would lose or whatever and um uh there was a sequence to um, how the board lit up. It was not random. It was not random. Non-random sequence. It and seemed so, random, but it was not. It seemed random. And and uh, when they created the board, they I think it was like five patterns, if I'm not mistaken. Five different patterns, patterns that the board repeated. And if you 
spend enough time and energy looking and watching this game, which I can't imagine how many hundreds of hours of, of pressure luck this guy watched. But, <laughs> well, but, hey, for the payoff, it might actually be worth it. Well, right, exactly. So, so, so I just, I just love the, you know, this guy sitting in a room. There's always this guy. watching pressure <laughs> luck guy. for 18 hours a day, <laughs> right. and doing nothing else, and, and he's like, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna beat this game. I'm gonna figure it out, and then I'm gonna make it big. And this guy actually did it. And I love that, right? Because he figured out the pattern. And then, and then he spent who knows how long practicing being able to hit, hit it on the, the right. plunger at the right time. <laughs> he right? was using the pause exactly. button on the VCR. To oh, I'm do sure this. he was. Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> and so, so then he he got his way on on. Not only did he master all of that, figured out, mastered the skill, but then he wormed his way under the under the show, right? It which, was a long con. <laughs> which I think is awesome, Jeez. man. Yeah, and so he got on there, and of course he he he. He won like more money than any other game oh, show. It was sure. like 133 yeah, grand. Right, 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 right. One, yeah. So I, I just thought that was really interesting because to me, it's 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 like I mean, the guy was. He, he seemed like he was pretty skeevy, and he didn't <laughs> he didn't do anything with the money. He he just kept going from from one scam to the other. But I thought it was a great example of of kind of the, the hacker mentality. Wasted right? potential. Wasted potential. I mean, that but guy would that guy would have made an incredible pen tester. Oh, yeah. You know, I he mean, would have been. Yeah. So I just yeah. thought it was really interesting. I also, and we were talking about this before the podcast started, that the legality of that's it, it brings up an interesting discussion about the legality of hacking. So like, that guy didn't do anything illegal. He didn't break the law. He didn't. There's no law that says you can't be smart enough to guess what's going to happen before it happens. There's right. <laughs> just like there's no law against counting cards because that would be a law that basically says you can't be smart. Right. And so that law doesn't exist. And it's interesting that there's nothing against counting cards. And there was a group of students from MIT that did that extensively and won lots of money doing it with varied rates of success. But they're banned. You know, the casino has figured it out. And even though it's not illegal, they just say, if you're going to count cards, then get out because, you know, it's. It's their money. So just You're I doubt that smart. guy was allowed back on the game. Go away. Show. <laughs> right. Right. So it's not illegal to hack, but you might you might make some people angry if you do. But I think it, it's it's an interesting application of it, you know, instead of the, the hacker, you know, kid in a hoodie sitting in his basement. I think I think that is hacking. He wasn't wearing you know? a hoodie. Right. But he I was mean, in his basement and, and he was <laughs> Well, he might have been in his apartment. I, I imagine him being in a really crappy apartment. Yeah, somewhere, it's like a somewhere of VHS in like, like on a the rundown floor, a rundown New York uh, probably. Yeah, or Los Angeles <laughs> yeah. or something, you know. Like a basement apartment. Yeah, yeah. Like pizza takeout boxes everywhere. Chinese food. Mountains of yeah. pressure luck VCR tape. Oh, I wish I could have seen it. That would have been awesome. <laughs> One of those big TVs it's like built into the <laughs> yeah, like it's like yeah. a buffet but it has a TV built into it. Yeah, right, right, right with with the record player built right. in. Yeah. Yeah. Combo. <laughs> yeah. You know what a record player is, right, Kelsey? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's like from the 80s, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. 1880s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a phonograph. I was born in 1990. <sighs> anyway. <laughs> Kelsey Thanks. was born when John was already old. It makes me angry. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be angry. <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps things up for today. And thanks for listening in, everyone. Have Bye. a good one. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye.